0: Hey, and welcome to The Token Daily. I'm your host, Suna Amaz. Each week, we sit down with movers and shakers in crypto to discuss big ideas, both in crypto and outside of it. Everything from trends we're seeing in the space to the books we're reading lately. This podcast is presented by the folks over at Blockworks Group, a blockchain event and media production company. For exclusive content and events that provide insights into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Today we sit down with Pioneer winners Elena Natalinsky and Jay-Z to discuss everything under the crypto sun from privacy preservation to biometric key recovery systems and rogue government actors.
1: Hey Elena and Jay-Z, I'm so excited to have you guys on. You recently won Pioneer um, with crypto projects, and we'll get to what Pioneer is in a minute. But for our listeners who don't Know who you are. Can you give a little background of what you've been working on in this space and what you're thinking about today? And Elena, if you want to start.
2: Um, yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Elena and I'm working at a company called Beanstalk. And, and Beanstalk is a privacy coin project. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the way I heard about Pioneer is through like mutual friends and Twitter, I think mostly. <laughs> um, and I ended up applying and then. Um, Pioneer has this great mechanic of a leaderboard, and that's basically the only thing that kept me going. <laughs> <laughs> and what were you doing before Beanstalk? Um, before Beanstalk, I was a software engineer at Airbnb, um, and before that, I was at Microsoft. Um, and I guess there was a startup in between. I forgot about that. <laughs> uh, it didn't do so well. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I got into the Ethereum community first. Um, I went to the ETH Global hackathons. The first one being ETH Waterloo happen in October 2017. Um, And then yeah I kind of been hooked since then. And and Jay-Z what's your
1: story? Um, What did you uh, enter Pioneer with and um, what were you doing before uh, you enrolled with your um, with your project?
3: Yeah so this is actually the second project I've entered Pioneer with. My first one was my original project which was esports related but this time I entered with a private key recovery system that uses biometrics. So then before I worked on this well, I'm a high school student, so I've just been doing school stuff until I like started working in the blockchain space.
1: Nice. And I, I want you guys to describe Pioneer in a minute, but I want to give a little context about why I think we're in kind of a unique place in like startup history where um, YC the startup ecosystem itself is incredibly vibrant and YC is getting to a point where um, it's scaling. It recently dramatically increased the size of its latest cohort. Uh, The size of investments has gone up from 120 to 150 K. You know, they moved from Mountain View to San Francisco. And anytime you get bigger and you're starting to scale, I think it's tough to stay really close to the ground and really see, really see what's going on. And I think in addition to scaling, um, Within San Francisco and Silicon Valley, we see, you know, quality of life is going down and housing prices are going up, especially with um, the latest round of IPOs are coming with like 15,000 plus, you know, newly minted millionaires. Um, and, and so we, we see investors buying up real estate in elsewhere, like in Singapore and New Zealand. And I think you take into account those two conditions. And then the third one being uh, just the nature of work is turning towards being more remote. Um, there's developer tools and, uh, consumer facing tools that help remote work become more robust. And I think you take all these three conditions into account and it seems as though Pioneer's position to like, not only exist, but thrive with, with the environment that we have set up for, for startup ecosystem. So if you guys can give a little background about how Pioneer works, um, for listeners who aren't familiar with the program.
2: Yeah. So, uh, just kind of a brief story about my journey to San Francisco, um, and I say, and I use this story all the time. But when I was at Microsoft, I wanted to have a one-on-one with our corporate vice president, and her assistant would never schedule the meeting. And it's you know, I think it was at least six months before I finally gave up and <laughs> quit Microsoft. Uh, and then I came to Silicon Valley, and in the first week, I went to a meetup uh, where Steven Sanofsky, who used to be the head of Windows, was like doing a panel. And afterwards, I just came up to him and I, you know, I asked for coffee and he like became my mentor. And that was incredible. Like I was like, wow, like people in San Francisco are so accessible of that caliber And so, and this goes for VCs as well as, you know, entrepreneurs or founders or CEOs or inventors and so on and so forth. And And, and, and to be clear, it wasn't, and and to
1: be clear, it wasn't I got coffee and instantly became my mentor. It's like over time there was communication work that was done and then you guys cultivated a mentorship, mentee relationship.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was willing to give me like, you know, career advice and we met several times and, um, I mean, like to me, like not only was it helpful, but it was also kind of an eye opener of how accessible all these people are. Um, now, for to bring you back to Pioneer, um, one of the things is like if you're in if you, if you are in San Francisco and you want to start a company or have introductions to VCs, it's relatively easy because you can make these connections so fast but if you're you know somewhere on the other side of the world that may not be the case um and so what i really love about pioneer is that it kind of opens up the funnel to all the people and so they there's no age limit there's no like background specification there's no geographical requirement you can literally be anywhere in the world and participate um and they they do try to mimic it towards like yc in terms of you know Um, if you go up the leaderboard, so to speak, uh, you get access to board of advisors for kind of like the people of the Silicon Valley that I mentioned. Um, So it's basically like this kind of an incredible attempt to open up like, kind of the magic of meeting people in Silicon Valley, or like meeting that caliber of people in Silicon Valley to people, um, you know, from the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that context is important. So I think all those factors considered, it makes sense right now for Pioneer to um, be stepping in and taking on more of that, you know, distributed YC type of role. And then, uh, Jay-Z, what does the actual platform look like? Like, I, I you know, uh, started, is there like an acceptance process for Pioneer? Like, once you're part of it, um, what what does day-to-day look like? What are you doing on the platform? Is there a place you go to? Can you kind of paint a picture of what being yeah. in Pioneer
3: means? So when you first sign up, you basically answer a bunch of questions about your project and about yourself. And then I think you do this like personality quiz, which is interesting. And it does those like big five traits. And then after that, you solve a bunch of puzzles and it gives you a score based on how many you got right. Then after that, you do these weekly updates where you basically say what you've done that week and what you plan on doing the next week. And people vote for you based on the update. So it's actually interesting that they don't vote on you based on what your project is. They vote on you based on how much you've done every week. And they added a new thing called Pioneer Chat, which runs on Discord, where a lot of people who are playing in the same Pioneer tournament can get together and talk about their projects and give each other advice, which is really nice.
1: Awesome. And so everybody is voting on each other. And then ultimately, the top however many... Uh, are eventually after X
3: number of weeks as the pioneers. Cool. Uh, Um, They have a selection process at the end. So it's, I don't know exactly how it works. I don't think they ever said, but the top whatever get put into like a finalist group and then the judges select which ones they want to become pioneers.
1: Awesome. And then um, there's of course, you know, uh, some cash compensation, a trip out to San Francisco, getting face time with uh, potential mentors. Um, And Before we do a deeper dive on your eyes' respective projects, I'm curious what other crypto projects you saw that were part of Pioneer.
2: I think there was only one that I'm aware of but I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. And what was that project? Oh, um, it was by Julia Wu, and she made this, um, I believe it was like uh, non-fungible tokens that represent renewable energy. And I think the idea is that if you invest in these tokens that represent like solar Energy or wind energy, whatever it is, then you are more invested in the real life to help those renewable energies as well, so that your digital token goes up in value. I think that was a concept.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, I was listening to a recently like, episode of Econ Talk, and they were talking about how incentive alignment um, as it pertains to the environment and like caring for our environment and what that means for our community isn't structured or doesn't map to an economic model that makes sense today. And maybe that's like one one route people can take to start thinking about it. But um, that's interesting. Um, So your project specifically, Elena, it's called Beanstalk. Um, Can you give us an overview about uh, what what Beanstalk actually is?
2: Yeah, so Beanstalk is a privacy coin project. So if you are familiar with uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum, I mean, I'm sure the listeners of your podcast are, um, then uh, all the transactions that go through those networks, or actually most networks that you can think of, are public meaning that if i ever get your address i can look up on a block explorer for that blockchain and i can see all the transactions you've ever made um and if we you know if we kind of fast track to like 10 years and imagine a world where everything's in crypto like all your payments are in crypto um then that basically means that all the transactions you've ever made are now public knowledge and your financial transactions are kind of like your fingerprint like i went and i got coffee this morning at a local bakery if someone sees that, they'll probably know where I live. <laughs> um, so uh, the project basically is a way to how do we have this digital currency that's actually safe for people to use? Um, and uh, we, have, we have one goal in the company, <laughs> and it's to make uh, a privacy coin that is easy to use. Um, because Most of these privacy coins are not.
1: Okay. So one so. of the bigger differentiators just being um, usability.
2: I mean, uh, I was actually talking recently to an investor, and she made it very clear. She basically said, "No one actually has. No one actually won yet. Um, we don't actually have mass adoption. We don't have market penetration. So uh, it's kind of up for grabs for anyone at this point. So even though there are other private equity projects, I don't think any of them have actually won yet.
1: Mm, I see. And to our, you know, listeners who are thinking, well, you know, we have a lot of people that." have Zcash, um, are we talking about actually using it in a privacy context or are we just saying in general, even holders don't make up that large of a market?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think even if you talk to Zuko and you ask him, you know, what's the primary use case that people use Zcash for? I think even he would agree that mostly it's speculation and as an investment opportunity. And you can kind of clearly Mm -hmm. see that by their metrics as well. Because if you look at the number of transactions that are made transparently versus shielded, then there's a huge disbalance. So just for reference, um, Zcash has kind of two modes. One of them is called transparent transactions, which are identical to Bitcoin. So they're public, traceable, and so on. And then there's a second mode called shielded, which has privacy properties. Um, But unfortunately, the shielded privacy mode is really difficult to use because you have to have a full node experience. There aren't that many wallets that support it it's a really kind of a painful process to set up. And so if you look at like daily transactions, I think the number is between five to 15% shielded transactions per day. Um, And, you know, and most of them are probably miners. (laughs) So uh, it's, yeah. So the usage is not, is not good.
1: Um, And you came from uh, prior to working on Beanstalk, you'd mentioned that you were, Initially, your on-ramp into the crypto world was um, through Ethereum, and you were working on a few Ethereum projects. You were winning and placing at a bunch of ETH hackathons. And I was curious why you decided to go uh, into privacy instead of, you know, working on something that's like smart contract-related or whatnot.
2: Yeah, good question. Um, so I was looking into zero-knowledge proofs actually from the very beginning. So my very first project uh, that kind of got me into the crypto space. Was I went to ETH Waterloo, which was a Ethereum focused hackathon at the University of Waterloo um, in 2017, and uh, my project was decentralized video streaming and IPFS, um, and that was an amazing experience. I got to know so many founders there, like so many projects. I got, got a prize from Maker, which was really nice. Um, but yeah, and so I realized, okay, well, in, in my project particularly, I had kind of three layers. So one is like you know the front end layer. Then there was like the, the computation layer. So when a user would upload the the video, some something has to transcode the video so that it could be streamed. Um, and then the third layer was payments. And I was like, okay, well, obviously I can put anything on IPFS, which is decentralized video. Uh, sorry, de- 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 uh, decentralized file storage. Um, and obviously the payment layer, we can, you know we have decentralized. <laughs> um, but the one thing that we don't have decentralized is the actual computation layer because I actually had to have an AWS box uh, do the transcoding, and so I was kind of obsessed with this kind of a notion of like how do we have actual decentralized computation that can be very like that can be verified, so verifiable computation, um, and that was actually a very hard and interesting um, problem, and I kind of went down like the <laughs> the rabbit hole, so to speak, of research, and I bumped into zero knowledge proofs as one of the solutions, um, so it was kind of like aware of the topic for a while and then you know as i got more into ethereum and i kind of uh, participated participated more with smart contracts uh i decided i really wanted to be in the space um but i actually still believe that payments might be the biggest killer use case for blockchain Uh, and that's why i decided to focus on that
1: oh wow um that's incredibly poignant and um do you uh bind to the world where you can have tech cases as well? I know identity and reputation seem to be a compelling use case as well. Um, or is it just, is it money is the
2: winner and
1: it's winner takes all?
2: Um, I mean, that's a really difficult question. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what the outcome is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm unconvinced that at this moment in time, something like identity would be that, 10x factor that would convince a person to go from using fiat to using crypto. right um, But there are certain cases where yeah, like having a decentralized autonomous global currency without borders is actually very beneficial. Uh, And, you know, if it makes the person save money on wire transfers or be able to purchase goods from a different country that doesn't, you know, bank with their fiat, uh, if like if it opens doors to the consumer, then there is a compelling reason to use crypto. And so even though, yes, like, you know, maybe in the future, I do believe that reputation and identity and, you know, all these concepts, you know, are going to be important or might be important. um, I still think like in order for us to convince a regular person to switch, we need to give them like a compelling enough reason. And I think payments might be it.
1: Absolutely. And I think um, your perspective is more informed than most people who would say it um, only because you had worked on um, an identity solution within the Ethereum community and like are coming at it from, you know, have been in both worlds and, and this seems to be a more compelling use case. Um, uh, in When you're talking about your research with ZK Snarks, it reminded me of an interesting point you'd made recently where you'd said that, the academic advancements we've made in cryptography, um, it, it seems to be outpacing uh, the actual level of deployment. And so I was curious if you could talk more about the execution gap that exists between what we're seeing on the academic front versus what's being deployed on a corporate level or on a protocol yeah. level.
2: So I think I was talking to Alessandro Chiesa about this, actually. Um, he's a professor at Berkeley. He's one of the co-writers of, as you knowledge proof called called Starks. Um, And he was also the founding scientist of Zcash, I believe. So uh, really, you know, um, respected person in the space. And so I talked to him about this, um, when I basically was talking to him about Starks, um, which is a technology that came out relatively recently. And he basically said that in order for uh, like a cryptographic research or a research paper to actually make it into the consumer world, you have about, I don't remember the actual estimate he gave me, but you know, a couple decades <laughs> of like difference. Yeah. And I asked, like, well, well, why? Like, why is it that uh, a professor might, you know, come out with the idea and only have you know forty years pass until um, they might see it in the consumer world? And like, he basically said, well, uh, cryptography is such a finicky thing where you have to you have to be a hundred percent sure that you know it's vetted for and it's secure and so on. And so usually. Uh, you need to have a textbook written on the subject. And how do you get a textbook written on the subject? Well, there's, you know, Wait. a grad student would do a thesis. Wait, you need an sorry entire guy.
1: textbook written on it before it is it, ready? Or,
2: or what do you mean by that? It's not like a rule of thumb, <laughs> but it's more like, uh, it's more like I think him commenting like the pattern of, um, like, how do we see technologies being implemented? Mm -hmm. And so you would call something a standard when it's being taught in schools, right? Uh, And, you know, it's being taught in schools because there's a textbook written on it because there was a professor that retired that had time to write the textbook on it.
1: Wow. Okay. I I see you're saying that's interesting. Uh, the schooling or, you know, the proverbial textbook as a standard of, um, you know, doing something or method of doing something. I see. So so once you've achieved that level, then it's ready to adopt or then it's deemed like safe to be incorporating um, in the consumer realm.
2: I mean, I think that's the general rule of thumb that we've seen in other uh, cryptography kind of concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, at this point in time, we're seeing that gap uh, become smaller and smaller. Uh, Starks are a great example. They, you know, I think Starks came out Actually, sure, but I mean, in you know, in the last couple of years, and there's already a company behind it, and they're trying to make a you know consumer product. So obviously, there's exceptions to the rule, but historically speaking, yes, there has been like this large gap between when it was first discovered and when it was you know massively produced for consumers, um, primarily because like it needed to be a standard in order for it to be implemented.
1: Wow! And what are ideas you have? accelerating that process or do you think this is is just going to be the norm and that's how we adopt it
2: um i mean definitely you know waiting 40 years is probably uh too long of a time in my opinion um but as i as we were working on this privacy coin I personally am becoming more and more paranoid about security and vulnerability and bugs and like all these concepts. So, uh, I'm definitely, you know, coming from like a startup world where it's like, you know, move fast, break things. Uh, I'm kind of going onto like the other side of the spectrum of like test things and make sure there's no bugs and vulnerabilities. broken enough things. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, especially if you're dealing with people's money, right? right. So you need to give them that guarantee. So, you know, 40 years, like I said, it was probably too long of a time, but it does need to be very thoroughly tested and vetted and audited in order for, you know, for it to be like actually given to a consumer with some, you know, guarantees.
1: Absolutely. Um, I'm curious, jay and we'll get to your, your work in a little bit, but are you seeing similar things with your project in regards to this like research to... Um, producing on a consumer level.
3: Yeah, definitely. Like It's like what Elena said with test things first before building them. We're doing the same thing because with like biometrics, if we lose their biometrics, then they're really screwed, right? You can't change your face or change your fingerprints that easily. So yeah, we're definitely right. erring on the side of security and privacy before like, fast growth.
1: Right. I, I like Elena's point in that, um, you know, the move fast, break things, obviously some from Facebook's mantra at the time, which has been changed, like move fast with, with stable infrastructure, but yeah. and, yeah. and it's, um, I mean, we're talking about people's, uh, identities and, uh, people's finances and, you know, when stakes are higher, um, I think the only comparable thing I can think of right now is like, uh, probably health as well. You, you want to move uh, more cautiously than you would, um, you know, spinning up an OS app to play like Candy Crush or something. Um, cool. And, and, and Elena, I had one question about your competitors. You mentioned that, you know, that right now there isn't a clear winner, especially as it comes to, you know, privacy, cryptocurrencies. Um, and, and there's obviously more room for competitors to come in. I'm curious, though, if, when when you hear the argument, well, won't Bitcoin just adopt these privacy features, or can't this just be rolled into Bitcoin? What's your response to that?
2: Yeah, so I think there's like three questions, not one question, <laughs> uh, or three things I would like to respond with. Mm-hmm. So one is, I don't think there's a winner overall, not just in the privacy coin space, um, but in you know, I don't think Ethereum or Bitcoin actually reached to like their full potential of being used as a source of payment. Um, so when I say like, there's no clear winner, I kind of mean it across the board. And then in terms of privacy coins, well, you know, I don't like I, I'm hesitant to say that one coin is going to win or rule them all sort of thing. I think there's going to be a couple that are going to fit certain niches. Um, Privacy, in my opinion, would be one of them. And in terms of like other coins, so there's Zcash and Monero. um, Yeah, like Monero, for example, there have been countless of studies, including from MIT, that basically said, "Look, like the it's fundamentally flawed, and it doesn't actually give you the privacy guarantees that that it says it does." And
1: what are And the, then with
2: the and, what are the,
1: and what are the, Sorry, go ahead. And, and when because that, that is a you know a big a big claim to make. When we make that claim, what things do we point to that say the um like what we're actually seeing being executed isn't matching up with being theorized in regards to privacy? Where does Monero fall short, in your opinion?
2: um yeah so i I mean like i if people are interested i would highly recommend reading like the mit review that uh they published i think a couple years ago at this point um maybe a year ago (laughs) about like the vulnerability vulnerabilities in monero and some of them they actually have fixed so i will give them that Mm -hmm. um but on the base level i like so for, for monero um The way it works is whenever you send a transaction, you personally don't sign the transaction. The transaction gets signed as part of a group called a ring signature. And so the ring signature can have a group of, let's say, five to seven people. And I think now with their recent upgrade, that number is now 11. So it's a bit more privacy or a bit more security, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a really finite set. So if I really wanted to track a certain user or a certain, you know, and figure out like where a transaction could possibly have gone from, um, I'm looking at a public finite set of people that are part of the transaction. And so that's kind of like where the vulnerability comes in. So it's like provable deniability. So, you know, if I can say like, well, I, you know, there's provable deniability that I may not have sent this transaction. Um, But if you have like static analysis, you could kind of, you know, have, you, you, you kind of start seeing some patterns. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so like if you were using Monero one time, like I'm sure there is a, a, a method or a pattern um, that is, that a user can take to have safe private transactions. Like, you know, if they have multiple wallets and if they use like every wallet one time, I'm sure you could make it work. Um, but as is like out of the box, Uh, I don't think it's safe for people to use on a regular basis and expectable privacy.
1: Agreed. And then we were about to uh, transition to Zcash.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, So Zcash is the other privacy coin that's really big. Um, There's also a third one, Grin, that I'll talk about in a minute. Um, But yeah, so Zcash, like I said before, has two modes, transparent and shielded. And even though Zcash markets themselves heavily as a privacy coin, um, their usage is mostly being used in their transparent mode, uh, which is identical to Bitcoin. And um, the reasons are the same that I've mentioned before, where it's just very difficult to use. And so even though Zcash actually offers the highest quality, quality of privacy, they make it really inconvenient for their users to use. And I strongly believe that privacy cannot come at the price of convenience, because then people don't use it. <laughs> um, so that, that's that's kind of like my, my biggest backlash um, with Zcash is that it's just so hard to use.
1: I see. Um, and, and so when we discuss Bitcoin, simply rolling up these privacy features, what what about that? Like, do you find that as being like threatening to be installed? Like, how do you how do you think about like pri- uh, privacy becoming um, more integrated with Bitcoin? Like, we've seen recent wins. Um, with arguably uh, Dandelion um, becoming more robust and uh, Schnorr signatures could arguably be a form of privacy that Bitcoin will begin offering. So how do you evaluate that part of um, Bitcoin's infrastructure?
2: Yeah, so Dandelion is great, but it's actually the very first step in trying to um, kind of hide the IP of where the transaction originated from. So Dandelion has nothing to do with privacy of what gets stored on chain, it does help trace uh, from which IP or from which computer uh, the transaction originated from. So basically the way Dandelion works is, let's say if I'm part of the Bitcoin network and I'm trying to send out a transaction, well, you know, other nodes can basically listen and say like, okay, uh, you know, this transaction came from this computer and therefore I know that this person's probably in like California or whatever it is. Right. So uh, what Dandelion does is it basically tries to hide that IP trace. Um, So it's good to have on any network. uh, And it's very rudimentary and kind of, you know, very preliminary way of doing this, um, which can still kind of be, you know, broken, but it's a good first step. Now, in terms of Schnorr signatures, Schnorr signatures are great. Um, Bitcoin moves really slow, which is kind of a good thing because, you know, uh, it needs to be like extremely secure <laughs> and so on and so forth. And so even though Schnorr signatures, I believe, like will finally come to Bitcoin, it might be a long time. <laughs> um, and on top of that, Schnorr signatures, uh, they basically combine the signatures per transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but the miner still sees everything plain text and... Yeah, so I mean, it's definitely good to have, but I, I think they're thinking about having Schnorr signatures not in terms of privacy, but also in terms of scalability. Oh, yeah, because it's first it. and foremost,
1: yeah, to clarify, uh, it's first and foremost, a scalability uh, solution, but then also helps, um, yeah, obfuscate certain things uh, when it comes to privacy. So not a privacy solution in and of itself, um, more, more scalability, but arguably does help on the privacy front. So I think what I'm hearing from you is like it's a long enough time horizon where you know, there could be a competitive private cryptocurrency and Bitcoin could also offer these privacy preserving features down the line. Yeah, but at all,
2: Dandelion and Schnort, uh yeah, they provide privacy kind of features, so to speak, but they don't provide full privacy. Bitcoin will never hide amounts, for example, at least not in like the foreseeable future, mm-hmm. because that would be like a fundamental change to the entire protocol. Right. Schnorr signatures only obfuscate, like they only um, combine the signatures per transaction. So, You might be able to obfuscate on chain only who made the transaction, but the miners still see everything, so technically. You know.
1: Yeah. Oftentimes when people are like, oh, you know, Bitcoin will just roll up pri- like these privacy features. I'm like, well, I don't know if you've talked to a Bitcoin core developer or how recent it's been, but um, it, it's a pretty uh, immovable group. Like there's a lot. We talk about, you know, being incredibly cautious when we move forward. Um, uh, and, and I think that's uh, doubly true uh, within within the Bitcoin community. Um, one other thing I want to talk about uh, when we t- when we think about anonymity, um, ha- how do you think about preserving anonymity when it comes to on-ramps and off-ramps? So one, um, just the ability to, you know, convert your uh, cash into or, or Bitcoin, if you're holding it um, into bean stock. Um, and then also, when there's a liquidation event, how are you still able to, you know, obfuscate like who you are and what the amount is? And and what are the guardrails put in place?
2: Yeah, so, you know, a lot of people have asked me, you know, why are you working in privacy coin? Because it's dangerous? Uh, have you thought about like, terrorism? And, like illegal activity and that your privacy could maybe be used for these things. Um, And yeah, my biggest pushback is actually the off ramp and the like on, on and off ramps (laughs) because um, you know, an off ramp is basically like, like Coinbase an exchange that, you know, allows you to trade back to fiat. Um, And those have like heavy KYC and, you know, AML and so on and so forth. And so um, my pushback is I only want to protect how people transact with the coin, but if they want to go back to fiat, you know, that's, I actually agree with the system that we have in place of, you know, safeguards of making sure that there's KYC in place and so on. So from that perspective, yeah, like the fact that KYC, the, f- the fact that on ramps or off ramps have KYC and AML is a good thing.
1: Mm, it checks back against that. And then um, on that thread, <laughs> on um, uh, yeah, you know, ter- like terrorist activities or like you know uh, performing things of you know an unsavory nature with privacy coins, um, what's the best argument that you give when people say? the, you know, the age old, uh, well, why would I need a privacy coin if I have nothing to hide?
2: Yeah. Um, I think people don't understand how valuable privacy is. Um, so for example, like as soon as you and I are friends, um, I don't get to know what you had for breakfast this morning or what you had for dinner this morning, like last night or where you were, uh, or the fact that you might have taken BART at some point. Um, mm-hmm. I don't get to know any of these things and I'm okay not knowing <laughs> because you have some, you know, some concept of privacy. Now, if all of your transactions were completely public, I could basically know exactly where you were, exactly what you bought, and exactly what you did. Um, and uh, I just think that what privacy coins attempt to do is actually bring on the existing behavior that we have today. You use a credit card; I don't get to see your credit card transactions. We're basically trying to bring the same experience onto the blockchain world too. So people like often say, like you know i have nothing to hide why would i want this well you only say that because you actually are kind of used to this privacy that you'll already take for granted
1: absolutely um i, I think can i jump in with something there? yeah go for it
3: yeah so i was thinking about this i was like even if someone really honestly has nothing to hide like they're fully okay with their entire personal life being public there are plenty of people who do have for legitimate reasons, like things they want to keep private if they're living like a dictatorship or something. Right. So then having more private transactions would shield those who are like actually in need of, um, in need of having privacy.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, one taking for granted, you know, we live in a place where, um, uh, we don't readily, you know, most citizens don't face that problem um but different places over the world you know have different um rights have been taken away from them are surveilled in different ways and then i think the other part to it is um and, and you were kind of lead, alluding to this elena where privacy becomes the default and as we are increasingly coming online we can start equating our physical behaviors where you know you have a door shut not because you're necessarily committing a crime within your home but because it's your home. You want, you know, the confidentiality, you don't, not everything needs to be broadcast to the public. And, and I think that as we grow more comfortable with and understand our digital footprints more and see how um, uh, just how easily like we can get attacked or what information is actually being collected on us, I think that that'll become more important. Um, I want to transition to uh, Jay-Z's project uh, for a little bit. Thanks for hanging in there, (laughs) Jay-Z.
2: Oh yeah, of course. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, um The other thing I want to say is, for example, you don't want to be docs on Twitter, right? Like you don't want someone to completely reveal your address or your phone number or your email address. Well, maybe that's okay. Um, and like, even though you might not have anything to hide, you just, that's kind of information that you don't want people to know. No. Like you don't want to have stalkers knowing where you live mm-hmm. um, and you might be an honest citizen, right? <laughs> and you still might want that privacy, you know, having your physical location be hidden. Um, And like I said, like your payments basically reveal your physical location and times as well. Um, So yeah, I don't think privacy has anything to do with uh, enabling illegal activity. I think it's just protecting the people that use it. Completely agree.
1: Just because you aren't a bad actor doesn't mean um, others aren't. And it's funny, like you you don't really understand the threat until, you know, you've had your identity stolen or you've been doxxed and then you realize just how unsafe um, the internet can be. Um, uh, yeah, great, great note to end on. Um, and, uh, and, and we'll, we'll circle back, um, just like on a last like pioneer, um, question in in general for both of you, but I do want to focus a little bit more on Jay-Z's project. Um, Jay-Z, uh, for users at home that don't, you, you talked about it a little bit earlier when you talked about the EEGs, but can you, um, talk about what the problem is right now with private key recovery systems and what you guys are building?
3: Yeah, so right now, if you're using crypto, you have to keep this private key secure and safe. And you kind of have this paradox where you want it to be easily accessible to you, where you can't lose it, but also where no one else can steal it. Um, And that's really hard for everyday users. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to somehow tie your private key to your biometrics. So that if you ever lose your private key or even you just need access to private key, you can just use your biometrics and get to it instead of having to do some strange like writing it down, storing it away and all that.
1: And uh, what are people generally using right now in order to recover their private keys?
3: So right now, there's several solutions. One of them is just keeping it it on an exchange and then logging into it. Uh, Some people just write it down. There's expensive custodial solutions and multi-sig things but those are hard for normal people to use and then some people just don't back it up like i've lost like a good amount of money from losing my private keys right so
1: yeah right and so what you guys are doing is the equivalent of you know touch id or face id on a phone but now it'll be for your crypto assets correct um Awesome, I I think, uh, and I have a lot of questions um, from learnings uh, in the Apple realm and using biometrics there, but before we jump into it, I think one of the major problems that people have with using, one of the major problems people have with recovery systems is, um, it's kind of paradoxical in crypto where you, where reversibility and complete autonomy seem to be at odds, even though they're the two things that users really care about. So, you know, if you, um, have lost access to your assets, you want a way to recover them. But the way the industry has treated this problem is that that necessarily means you are giving up your sovereignty or you're giving up autonomy over that. Um, and so I think before biometrics, we don't have this world where you can have your autonomy and be your own bank, but also um, have the ability to uh, recover um, your assets really like, regain access to it without going through a middleman or without sacrificing that trust. Um, and, and I think you guys offer a solution where you can have both. Would you agree with that? Or what are your thoughts there?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think that with us, if we succeed, then you're going to both be able to keep that self-sovereignty and be able to have recoverability. I think there still might be some trade-off there. So you might be giving up some of your freedom for a bit more recoverability, but I think it's within a range of like anyone would be okay with it.
1: Um, one, one problem that people have with using uh, biomarkers, or, like using biometrics, is that the stakes are much higher if that information isn't encrypted or if that isn't, if, if you're hacked, right? So, like, Apple has to do a lot of work around getting the fingerprint stuff right um, because, you know, if somebody else has my information about my face or, you know, um, my fingerprint, et cetera, um, those aren't easily changed. So, uh, how, how do you guys think about protecting actual biomarkers or like, not a lot, like, uh, anticipating um, potential like compromises or security threats?
3: Yeah. So the main there's two main ways we're looking at that. One is encrypting the biometrics still on your device before it gets sent anywhere, um, and then the second one is using cancelable biometrics. So basically, like, salting your raw biometric data with some PIN or some transformation so that even if that biometric gets stolen, you can still change it. So even though you can't change your fingerprint, maybe you can change the way your fingers is rotated or change a number that's attached to that print.
1: And you've mentioned before that you are thinking about different layers of biometric. So it's not purely face ID. It's not purely fingerprint. Um, it would take into account different types of biomarkers. And I think one of them you'd brought up our brainwaves. Um, are brain waves. um Can you talk a little bit more about that and how you guys plan or intend to use EEGs?
3: Yeah, so it's still a super new area of biometrics. It's probably the most like cutting edge layer of biometrics. So we're not entirely sure how it's going to work. But basically, like everyone has unique brainwaves. Our brains work slightly differently. Uh, So if consumer tech gets to the point where we can detect those brainwaves, then we can use that as an authentication measure. The problem is there's no EEG sensors on phones or anything right now, so it's still a ways away. But when we do get there, it's probably going to be one of the most secure biometric methods we have.
1: Um, And and I find that interesting because it may be um, secure, but I think it's incredibly transformative. Um, When I think about, and I mean that in a way that, like it actually literally changes. Um, I think about the brain um, under stress versus, you know, the brain... um, you know, during a peaceful state and let's say, you know, you are being, uh, held captive or you're being kidnapped and you are, um, your biometrics are being used to access to your keys and you are, um, incredibly stressed or you aren't able to, like, how, how do you have the same markers? Like, how do you think about, um, different parts of your brains are activated versus, uh, based on the actual circumstance you're in and how does that stay consistent?
3: Yeah, so the nice thing about EEG is that if someone was kidnapped and stressed, then it wouldn't go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem is, obviously, if someone really needed that money at some point in their life where they were really stressed, then it might not go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, it's still so new that we really have no idea how we're going to deal with it. We might look into like just error correction codes and thresholds of like access to it. So if you're not extremely stressed, but somewhat stressed, it'll still go through. Or we might look into something where we have a backup solution of like social sharing, where if your biometrics aren't working, you still have this other way of accessing your keys.
1: So I wanted to pose a question to you guys both. Um, I know that part of the Pioneer package is uh, you receive around 6,000 or so in Stellar Lumens um, for having been part of the Pioneer's uh, cohort and, and having won. And what are you guys planning to do? with those stellar lumens? Are you planning to hold or liquidate or what does that look like for your company?
2: I'm actually not sure. Uh, we haven't gotten them yet. Uh, and it depends on whether or not they have a lockup. Uh, we actually don't know any of these details right now. So I'm not sure if they're even liquid at all when we get them. Um, so it's a pretty big question mark as to how we're going to get them in what form and how we can use them.
1: If you were able to liquidate it instantaneously, what would your plan of action be?
2: I mean, I don't know. We we're running a startup, so maybe buy a laptop. <laughs> I don't know. Buy <laughs> like have it off personal costs. <laughs> okay, we'll have to, use it like cash. Probably having like
1: convert that to cash like uh, pretty instantaneously.
2: Uh, I mean, I haven't really made up my mind yet, but that is something we might do. Yes,
1: cool. I, I liked um, Elena once you to entertain the idea of um, you know having a compensation in lumens or like having actual employees like using it just to really see how different wallet experiences can be across different cryptocurrencies and um appreciate ux when you guys are actually building it i really yeah yeah there's a a lot of a lot of different ways um you guys can place it cool um Well, this has been um, incredibly enlightening. I think I learned so much (laughs) about Pioneer in general, but um, good luck with both of your guys' projects and endeavors. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
0: Hey everyone, Suna here. If you liked this episode of The Token Daily and want to help us take crypto to the top of Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, then please do us a favor and rate, review, and smash that subscribe button. To leave a review, simply go to the Token Daily homepage and scroll down until you see five blank stars. Taking a few seconds to fill those stars in and leaving a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. Thanks
1: again for choosing to listen to the Token Daily. I'll see you next time.